Well, good morning, church. It is a privilege to be with you here today. I wished it was under a little bit different, better circumstances. Uh, I know you're going to be praying for your pastor, though, and I would encourage you to do so. I'd encourage you to check on him and his family often and pray for him always, daily. Um, my name is David Kelly. I am first and foremost a Christ follower. I am married to a wonderful woman named Michelle. Uh, we live in New Braunfels now. Um, I have four children, uh, all of which are grown and married, and I have six grandchildren so far, and I'm hopeful for more. And uh, I spent the day at the zoo with four of them yesterday, so if I'm dragging, that's why. So, uh, but I also, as a follower of Christ, I am passionate about the Word of God, and we will take time to study that. And I will, hopefully we'll have time to get through the book of Colossians while I'm with you. So if you'll take your Bible, turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 3 through 14. We'll hone in more on verses 9 uh, through 12, but we'll look at, at most all of them. So if you'll take your Bible, hold your place there. Uh, you know, we live in a country where people all around us believe many things now. You can see our country changing before your eyes. In fact, many of you who lived back in the, uh, if you remember the 50s, I don't, I wasn't born yet. If you remember the 60s or 70s, I remember the 70s and the 80s, things were much different than they are today. Um, and, and I say all that to say, uh, you know, it, it is a sad place we're in, but I believe the responsibility firmly lies with the church. We bear the blame. We have not done a good job of not only evangelizing, but discipleship. And so today, we're going to begin this book of Colossians, and Paul is writing to the church at Colossae. Um, and, and in the country in which we live, much like in Colossae, they, they had uh, a, kind of a, a strange cultic religious practice. You know, today, many people in our own country want to be their own God. They follow many forms of idolatry. They, they practice, uh, you can even look back in the Old Testament, they're not doing anything new. It's cultic practices uh, that are old, that are rooted in idolatry. You know, many people want to encourage the teaching that there's many ways to the truth. Some people want to say that there, there's no such thing as absolute truth. But there is, Right? But some people want to say, well, truth is relative. What's true to you is okay, and what's true to me is okay. But if we're going to get anywhere as a church, we need to come to the one foundation we know we can trust, the truth of the Word of God. And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Colossae was a Roman city in Asia Minor located at the base of about an 8,000-foot-tall mountain. There was a cascade descending down through the through there, and that's where they got their water supply from. In fact, Colossae was a thriving city. They were a prosperous. Uh, they were an industrial center. Uh, they were famous for their textiles, but they were in economic decline, partly because of a rival city, a city that you've heard of in the Bible known as Laodicea. So what happened there was Colossae had already survived an earthquake in 61 A.D., 
This earthquake had leveled the city. So what happened? The people of the city moved out of there. They didn't rebuild like we would today. They moved three miles to the south, and they rebuilt. And that's where they were. Um, there were several religions that were going on at the time. One was Judaism, which you know we're familiar with. The Jews with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they were teaching that religion there. There was one called Platonism. It's a form of idol worship. That's about all you really probably need to know. There was also mystery cults from the surrounding mountain people. I like to think of them as the Arkansas hillbillies. And so there was all kinds of stuff coming, but they would, they would merge all of these religious cultic practices into contradictory, contradictory religious practices that they were, they were keeping. It's kind of like today, right? Um, they, they worshiped angels. In fact, one of the main angels they worshiped was the archangel Michael. He was credited with sparing their town in the time of disaster, but Colossae was also the home to Paul's associates who helped spread the gospel uh, in, throughout Asia, up and down um, the valley. Today's world in which we live in, in the United States of America, is not that vastly different from this town. All kinds of religious cults and practices and religions, people were saying many different things, and in the midst of all this confusion, Paul writes this letter. How many of you ever just wish, man, I wish God would just talk to me and tell me what I need to do? Anybody but me? The good news is, is he has. And we don't often take time to read it. So this morning, we're going to read the Word of God. If you want to know how to hear the voice of God, you read the Word of God. And you read it closely and carefully, and then you do it. You, you don't worry about your tradition. You don't worry about anything else you've been taught as you were little or young to be normal. You say, this is the standard, and you follow it. And so that's what we'll try to do here today. This passage tells us that we are to be increasing in the knowledge of God. We do that through the study of the Word of God, trusting the Spirit of God to teach us, to implore us, to put it into action. And if you want to find a follower of Christ, you look for someone who is reading the Word of God, listening to the Spirit of God, and doing what God's Word says. So that's the beginning point. Let's pray before we look at this passage. Father, we come before you today and we ask, God, that you speak to us. We ask, God, that you would help us to understand your word. God, we pray that the Holy Spirit would guide us and teach us. God, we ask that you would show us the instructions from your voice and your mouth through your word that your church might be obedient to you. God, help me to be obedient to you. We ask, God, that you would uh, use, God, the words that I say here this morning, God, not that they would be mine, but they would be yours, and that your spirit would speak freely to your people, and God, they would hear your voice through your word today, in Jesus' name, amen. Look with me, if you will, Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. Go ahead and stand with me, if you will, for the reading of the word of God. It says this, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, 
which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You may be seated. Paul prayed specifically for these believers in this church in Colossae to have four elements of a worthy walk. We'll have some notes up here on the, on the screen. If you're like me, and I'll, you'll get to know me over time, I have some, some difficulty with ADD. I, chase, I can chase stuff. That's why I preach with notes. But, I, you know, I will tell you, if I have something to focus on up here, and if you're like me, you might need a pen in your hand and some paper, because if I can touch it and write it, I can remember it better. So just write some things down, jot some notes. The first element that you need to have in order to have a worthy walk, as Paul prayed for, is simply wisdom or spiritual insight. We see it there in verse 9. He's praying for them, be filled with the knowledge of the will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. The funny thing is, is in Colossae, the people there were dealing with a spiritual warfare in the town. There was a new concept in its beginning stages known as Gnosticism. Well, what's that? Some of you probably heard it before. It emphasized knowledge when approaching a deity. In other words, you need to learn all you can in your mind so that you can approach God. It was dependent on self. It was dependent on the mind. Gnostics picked and chose among many religious systems which related to God. But here's the basic beliefs of Gnosticism. Number one, knowledge is superior to faith. Number two, matter was evil. You say, well, what's the big deal with that? That presented a very difficult problem with the incarnation of Christ. If God took on flesh and matter was evil, there's a problem there. You see it? So they were, there, there was those two things. And then God was contacted by angelic beings. And so God was talking through angelic beings. And these angels were ranked. And they actually believed that Jesus was the lowest form. There's a huge problem with Gnosticism, right? For as we'll learn next week, Jesus is the highest of the high. There is no other. He is preeminent, Scripture tells us. You know, it sounds like they had come up with some other religion that sounds similar to someone else today in Utah. Paul prayed that they would have knowledge that was not of this world, that was not of a carnal nature, but one that was characterized by wisdom and spiritual understanding. 1 Corinthians 1, 
Verse 18 and verse 25 say this, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. Or, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Years ago, when I worked in IT world, I wrote software for about 13 years, and I was sitting in a cubicle one evening really late, and I'd been praying about God. I know I'm supposed to share the gospel with my friend. And one night I began to talk with him, and I shared the gospel with him, and he said, oh, David, I've heard all that. In fact, you know, I used to go to VBS with my grandmother back up in Colorado years ago, and, and you know, I've heard all that stuff. I've heard about Jesus dying on the cross. I know all that. He said, what I've come to the conclusion of is Christianity's for the weak-minded. It's for people who need a crutch. And I said, yeah, you've got it. And he said, no, 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 I practice Buddhism or Zen, you know, people that, that use this mind over matter stuff, people that are mentally strong. How sad. He had rejected the gospel and accepted a philosophy that said my mind is more important than my need of Christ. It was foolishness to him. He had heard the gospel, but he had no wisdom and understanding of it. Worst of all, he had no salvation. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 14 and 15 says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges, uh, the spiritual person judges all things, but to himself is to be judged by no one. What does that mean? That means for the spiritual person, they understand the things of God and no one can judge them. Why? Because Christ has been judged for them already at the cross. But to the one who's heard that message and has rejected it, he is judged by Christ himself. The question is, do godly things make sense to you? If they don't, you need to go back to the cross and re-examine your own salvation. I have a really good pastor friend of mine, and he told me this just this week. He's been praying for me. He knew I was coming here, and he told me uh, the difference between knowledge and wisdom. And his, his son-in-law, Joe Dodd, uh, told him this, and, and I, I thought, you know, that's pretty good. I think I'll use that. And, it, and it's kind of humorous, but it's a great way for you to remember the difference between being smart and being wise. You see, a smart person knows that a tomato is a fruit, right? But the wise person knows not to put it in a fruit salad, right? If you put a tomato in a fruit salad, we need to talk. But here's the deal. Godly things do not make sense to the unsaved. So Paul is praying for the church, I'm asking God to reveal things in the Scripture to you, not that you just have a knowledge of them, but that you know them and you go do them. That's why I'm glad your youth are in San Antonio and whoever else went with them or old people, young people, I don't care how old they are, go do the Word of God. If you know that you have salvation, if you know that you know that you know you know Christ, my prayer for you is that you pray for godly wisdom. You see, God says in his word, he who lacks wisdom, let him ask, and God gives richly 
He pours it out on you. So pray that God gives you wisdom. Number two, Paul listed in this, this list here um, of, of something that, that you can see with someone with a worthy walk is fruitfulness. Fruitfulness. Verse 10, kingdom works. What do you mean by that? Well, godly fruit, kingdom works. You, you've heard it before. We talk about fruit bearing all the time, but what is it? Bearing fruit has a couple of aspects to it. And if you want to know more about what it looks like for the internal soul and how you respond in everyday life, you go to Galatians 5, right? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, right? Anybody struggle with any of those? Patience at the zoo yesterday? Um, you know, but, but listen, the ungodly man or woman is not even going to struggle to implement what God has impressed and lives within their heart to do. The Christ follower bears the fruit of all of those things. You see, you don't just have different fruits of the Spirit. Those are not different fruits. They are the fruit of the Spirit. You bear them all. They all come together. Paul wanted them to bear the fruit in every good work and to increase in the knowledge of God. How is this done? First of all, it's done through diligent study of the Word of God. If you want to, be, you say, I want to bear fruit, I want to obey God, but if you don't know what God says, how can you obey Him? That's why I love the verse of Scripture that we often teach. And my kids came up through a Awana club. And, you know, I, I don't care what you do with your kids as long as you're teaching them to memorize Scripture and you point them to Christ. 1 Timothy 2.15, do your best, what? To present yourself to God as a worker who does not need to be ashamed, who accurately handles the word of truth. Amen or oh me? It's one or the other, Right? Either we study the Word of God and we say, I'm going to do it, or we say, well, I'm really not going to study the Word of God, but I heard a preacher say back in 1985, he said this, and I'm just going to kind of go with it. Go double-check the preacher. Go to this book and see if your tradition matches. Well, there goes that. But make sure that you are following the Word of God and not a tradition of man. It's, it's vitally important. You can keep it. Read it. You'll know where I'm going. That's okay. Okay, thank you. You know, the, the study of the Word of God has tremendous benefit. I, I have some really close friends um, that were missionaries in Albania for about three years. Went and saw them back in 2019. I'd been there. It was my second visit there. And they had worked. They were a little bit younger than me, which is still pretty old. <clears throat> they worked and worked and worked to learn this language. Uh, it's known as ship. And so they were practicing, they're working, and, and my friend Michael, it took him multiple years to get the language down. And about the time he was getting everything down, God called them back here and they, they needed to come back here for some family responsibility. But I'm going to tell you something. When you live in a foreign country and you're working, and it, it, it was terrifying for him to go pay his water bill, 
because he didn't understand the language. He didn't understand how they did it. People were pushing and shoving. He didn't know how to get to the front of the line to pay his water bill. But he was still, all the while, being a witness. He, he, he worked with the, he and his wife, Mitzi, worked with the Roma people there, the Roma culture, which is, they are the rejects of the rejects, if you will. They were the outcast. They were looked down on by, they're looked down on by everybody in, in all of Europe. And Michael and Mitzi worked so hard, and they knew that they were being watched all the time. They were being a living testimony. But my question to you is this. A missionary often takes the viewpoint as they're on the job 24-7, and we send money, and we give to missionaries, and we expect them to be on the job 24-7. But what about you? What about you? you know, aren't we all ministers where we live and work? Isn't there always somebody watching you? It doesn't matter... If it's a child, a grandchild, a co-worker, a spouse, someone is watching you. You are on the clock 24-7. Paul is asking that God would allow you to be fruitful during all of your time on this earth. Right? He would later write, the days are evil, right? Make the most of your time. Well, God sees that good fruit. He's using it to draw others to the kingdom of God. And sometimes people are claiming to be a Christ follower, but you look and all you see is bad fruit, right? What did Christ say? You will know them by their fruit. He didn't say you'll know them because they walked an aisle and said some words. He said, you'll know them by their fruit, and if their fruit is bad, they don't know me. Examine your own heart. Do you know Christ? This is what he's talking about with the church. Oh, God, I pray that they're fruitful and they have a mind for the kingdom of God. You know, I want to make one thing clear because, we, you know, we are Baptists, of course. We are saved not by our good works, Right? So don't get me confused here. But you were saved for good works. You were not saved by your works. You were saved for good works. How do you know? The Bible tells me so. Sometimes, though, in emphasizing our worthlessness of these good works and salvation, we create this belief in the mind of Christians that works are worthless and we don't need to worry about them. Listen to what Ephesians 2.10 says. We are his workmanship. We are God's handiwork. We're his masterpiece, that says. We were created in Christ Jesus, what? For good works, which God prepared beforehand so that you would walk in them. We would walk in them. What does that mean? Before you were born, God prepared works for you to walk in. He knew you would follow Christ. He knew you were coming along, and he prepared work for you to do. Walk in them. Walk in those works. Titus 3.8 says this, The saying is a trustworthy one, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These are excellent and profitable for people. Huh. You know if you're obedient to the word of God, there's a sense of joy that comes along with it. It's beneficial for you. James 2, 14 and 17, you know these verses well. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? 
17 goes on, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. That's how I know the Bible says works are, are good. They don't save me, but I am saved to do them, for them. So question this morning, what kind of fruit are you bearing? Don't turn to your neighbor. Oftentimes we say, well, I'm, I'm so glad so-and-so's here in this one. Well, golly. I'll get home. My wife will go, you don't do that. Well, no, because if I preached to everything I could do, I would not be preaching this standard. This is the standard that we hold up high and we say, do we measure up to Christ? Do we measure up to the Word of God? And oftentimes the answer is no, but by, by the grace of God, we still are saved. And by the grace of God, he is transforming us and sanctifying us day by day, making us more like Christ. So the question is, is are you growing more like Christ in the good works that God saved you to do? You should be seeing the fruit of the Spirit in your life grow. You should be seeing a heart for the lost, and your devotion to discipleship grow. In Baptist churches, and I've been guilty of this, we've done a great job oftentimes of, of trying to get people to respond to the gospel. We even want to get them in the waters of baptism and get them dunked, and we're like, yeah, we're good, we're done. No, you're not. That's not the Great Commission, is it? The Great Commission says, go therefore and make disciples. It's an active, ongoing action. We are making disciples day by day. We are inviting people to follow Christ, are we not? We're teaching them to observe all that he's commanded. We're inviting them to come and apply those principles at the same time. So that why? So they can do the same thing. They can go make disciples. And if God calls individuals to make disciples, what does he call the church to do? Plant churches. I'll give you a clue. True discipleship that grows a church sends people out. That's how you know if you're bearing fruit, if you have a heart for those things. If you want to bear the right kind of fruit, you're going to need God's power, which, which is where we're going next in this text. The next element that Paul prays for the Colossian Christians is to have strength. Or God's abundant power, if you're taking notes. Verse 11. It says, according to his might, Paul prays for them. According to God's might, not ours. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9 and 10 says this. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in what? Weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with the weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecution, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You know, I talked with your pastor on the phone last night. That was one of the passages of Scripture he quoted did you know that your suffering is never wasted? Did you know that when you are in the midst of the most difficult days of your life and you realize 
this power of God is being perfected in my weakness, that you realize you are totally and 100% dependent on God. And your pastor knows that, and I'm so grateful. He has the strength and the power of God resting on him because that is his hope. That's where his foundation is. And I beg that for you today as a church. I beg that you would just rest on the power of God no matter what's going on in your life. Your life is not lived on human energy. It requires supernatural strength. You must know the power of the risen Savior and under, to understand the power of God at all. You see, God's power is limitless, right? We, we say, well, I believe it's limitless. Can he heal someone? Well, we don't, we don't know about that one. Never seen that done before. I assure you, if God wants to heal, he will heal. And we need not be bashful in asking him. I beg you, pray. Pray for your pastor. Ask God to do something crazy, miraculous. Why? Not, not that it's just for the benefit of him, because God can raise up someone who's broken and hurting and, and down and at the point of death's door, but God raises people up and he heals them for a purpose, for his glory, that he might call people to Christ. You see, because the man who's healed of a physical ailment will die physically. Why? How do you know that? Because you know, in this body, we don't escape death lest Jesus come first, right? Death is still the undefeated physical foe. In other words, the math problem is there's still one death per one person, and it always happens. We just like to think it won't happen to us. So what, what about the life we live in the body? Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So if God heals and we ask him for God's abundant power to be shown, why? What's the purpose? It's for the glory of God and none other. Someone once said, much smarter than me, said, our power is not limited to our current need, but to the divine supply that God allows. That's pretty good. Pretty good quote, huh? I'll say it again. Listen. Our power is not limited to our current need, but to the divine supply that God allows us. Why did Paul want these Christians to have this power? Was it just to go perform the miracles, to raise the dead, to heal the sick, and cast out demons? Although those were great things, they just pointed people to Christ, right? No, why did they want him to have this power? It's so that we can have all patience, right? Because he says it right here in the text, with all patience and endurance with joy. Wow, I'm struggling, I'm hurting, I'm having difficulty, but I'm asking for God's strength. Why? That I might have patience and endurance with joy that people might see Christ in me. 1 Corinthians 13, it ties patience, and patience is always connected with kindness there, but here in this passage we see it's connected with joy. We, you and I suffer, why? Because we can't escape the sin of Adam. You and I were born into sin. You were born a sinner, in other words. For us to maintain joy and kindness towards others requires the very power of God in us. And it brings victory in the Christian's life. Look at verse 11. 
What is the result of the joy under trial? Endurance and patience. James 1, 2, and 3 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of many kinds or various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or endurance. Trials produce endurance. That's what they're there for. Did you know Jesus was tried a little bit? We always say, well, yeah, he was out in the desert. He was tempted three times. Yeah, yeah, 40 days. He didn't, you know, he, he fasted. I've never done that, by the way, for 40 days. But Jesus was also tested in the Garden of Gethsemane, was he not? If you go study the Garden of Gethsemane, what you find out, that word Gethsemane means the olive press. It's the place where the oil was completely pressed out of the olives, crushed. The olives were crushed there. And there's a great picture there because in the garden, it was Jesus who was praying and his sweat became like drops of blood. He was being pressed as a human, even though he was fully God. And he prayed, he said, oh, oh God, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but yours. Jesus, even though he desired not to be separated from God as he bore the wrath of God for sin, was willing to complete this task, though. And how did he complete it? I'm glad you asked. Hebrews 12, 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus, God in the flesh, just showed us, he showed us what the power of God looked like in flesh, and it was full of joy to take on the most intense suffering ever known to mankind. Let me ask you this. All of the suffering we do pales in comparison, does it not, to the cross? Question, what task is God calling you to complete that requires his strength? Your joy will come from knowing that you have completed what he's asked you to do, even through those times that you're suffering. Listen, the joy of the Lord must be your strength. Must be. It's your pastor's strength, I assure you, just from the short time I've known him and talked with him on the phone. Lastly, the last element Paul prayed for those who were to have a worthy walk was, was an attitude of the heart, verse 12, thankfulness. You know, as a Christian, we're to have a thankful spirit. Jesus offered you and I the greatest gift of all as a Christ follower. He gave his life for ours. He traded a life of sin, which was ours. We, we deserve to die the death that he died. We did not deserve the life he gives. And he gave us Not only forgiveness, a lot of people say, well, Jesus died on the cross to forgive my sins. No, 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 there's much more to it than that. He died not only to forgive you of your sin, but to give you his righteousness. Right? It It was a horrific trade for him and a great one for you and me. I trade my life of sin and I get his righteousness in its place. 
I get a home with him for all eternity. If you reject the gospel, if you refuse to repent of your sin, turn from your sin, and believe in the payment that Christ made for you on the cross, the Bible says you live in darkness. That's what he's talking about here in verse 13 and following. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. That was your condition before Christ. And he's transferred us. He's taken you out of darkness, transformed you into the kingdom of his beloved son. Into light. How do we know that? 1 John 1, 5. This is the message that we've heard from him and proclaimed to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness. Isn't it great that we share in his light? Listen, if you can't be thankful for the salvation of Christ, I don't know what you can be thankful for. I really don't. But when you're thankful for the salvation you find in Christ, you find your heart being thankful for many things. I've had this conversation with many different people, and in our culture today, I think it's my opinion that we overuse this word pride, the, the, the concept of pride. We talk about being proud. Well, I'm proud of my work. I'm proud of my kids. I'm proud of, I'm proud of my church. I'm proud of the... But, but here's the deal. I've, I've had to transition my mind. God convicted me of this. Maybe he won't of you. And I know most people don't mean that word proud in the same way. But if you look at the definition of the word, anytime I say I'm proud of this, I'm taking glory from God. Would it not be better to say I'm so thankful for my church I'm so thankful for my child that God is doing a work in. I'm so thankful for the job God has given me that he allows me to be obedient to him. And I'm thankful because if it was not for Christ, I could not do any of this. That's what happens in a heart that's thankful. A heart that's thankful always points back to the cross and says, I don't deserve any of this. I didn't really do any of this. I'm just being obedient to the good works that God called me to do. That's a heart that Paul is praying for them to be grateful for. It should be the result. Gratitude is something that every believer should have in them. Why? Because we have access to a Savior named Jesus. We have a personal relationship with Him. And it's not just any relationship. We are His child. We are His sons and daughters. Listen, I want to ask you, are you living a life so that your thankfulness to him is clearly seen not only by those that you work with and go to church with, but what about those in your home? Oh no, they're the ones that see everything. I'm guilty. I'm guilty. I pray that God gives me a heart of gratitude every day. As we conclude this morning, I want to ask, how is your walk? Is it a worthy walk? Are you pleasing to God? Are you walking in wisdom, bearing fruit as, as God gives you strength to live for Him? Does your heart reflect a thankful spirit? Listen, if you think your spiritual gift is to discern everyone else's faults, you got a problem you got a problem. That's not a thankful heart. You see, a thankful heart sees a down-and-out kid, and, and it says, man, I'm glad God's got them here. 
I'm, I'm glad we have an opportunity to love on them. Oh, they're misbehaving down there, but oh, God's going to change them. Isn't it going to be great when I watch God do this? See the difference in the attitude? God doesn't gift people with a critical spirit. He gifts them with a heart of gratitude if we know them. I pray that this passage describes you today, but if it doesn't, I, I assure you, God can change you. He can. All of us here stand guilty before God. You see, he's a, he's a holy God. Since the fall of Adam and Eve, man was separated from God, and we all stand guilty before him. There's not one of us. No, not one who's righteous. No one's good. And God's word says the payment that we deserve in, in Romans 6.23 for that sin is death. Not, not just a physical death. I'm talking about a spiritual death that's real. The Bible says it's a lake of fire. And I assure you it's real. The Bible also says that while you were still in that sinful state, God demonstrated his love for you in this. He died. He sent Christ to die for you. That's an amazing love. While I deserve sin and death, God demonstrated love for me in this. Why? While I was still in that sinful state, Christ died for me. And the Bible calls you to do two things. The Bible calls you to repent and believe. And over the course of 10 weeks, you'll hear me say this a few times. You can't have one without the other. You can't say, I'm going to repent, I'm going to turn from my sins and do good on your own strength and have salvation, for then you're trusting in your own works. And you can't just say, I'm trusting in Jesus alone, and, and I'm not going to turn from any of my sin, I just want to add a little Jesus to what I'm doing, because if then you say that, then you don't have salvation. How do I know? Because the Bible calls you to turn from your sin and trust in Christ and to trust that he'll change you. You can't add a little bit of Jesus to what you're doing. It doesn't work that way. Jesus said, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. That's repentance. Take up his cross, an instrument of torture, and follow me with everything you have. You see, salvation is urgent. And it, 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 the Bible tells us today is the day of salvation. It's a costly thing. Why? He who seeks to save his life will lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you'll find it, the Bible says. It's costly. It will cost you your life. You'll have to turn from all that you are and trust in all that he is. And it's an urgent decision. It needs to be made now. So in a moment, we'll pray. There'll be a, uh, Tom's going to come stand with us here, right? And uh, he, he'll be here to talk with you if you need to talk. I'll be here as well. But, but, but maybe you know that you know Christ today. Maybe you already know that. Maybe you've not been walking in a worthy manner. Maybe you just need to come and, and pray, God, help me to be obedient to your word. Maybe God's calling you to come be a part of, of this church and join this fellowship. I know there's a member class, and so we, we would want to visit with you about that as well. But may, maybe God's calling you to, to serve in a particular ministry. My prayer is that you would find a place to be obedient to do the works that God has called you to. That you'd be involved right here and make disciples for his glory and his namesake. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. We give you thanks and praise for your goodness and your grace and your mercy. 
God, we thank you for the hope that we find. We thank you for the truth of your word. God, we ask that you would just be with us during this time of reflection on your word. We ask, God, that you would help us to respond in obedience to you. And, and God, may we all know that, God, the invitation is always open. God, we walk out of these doors and you're still calling people by name to respond to you. God, I, I pray and I ask that people would respond to you today. God, that they would bow before you and humbly submit themselves to you. God, I pray that you would help us to seek after you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And God, that we would love others as we love ourselves as we leave this place here in a moment. But God, right now, Help us to be obedient to all that you ask of us in Christ's holy name. Amen. Please stand with me if you would. Uh, just take an attitude of prayer. Maybe bow and pray and ask God what he would have you to do. I'll be waiting here at the front. Tom will be waiting if you need to speak with someone. If you just need to come pray, this altar is always open. But the throne of God is always open as well. And you must come through Christ. So my prayer is that you approach him through Christ this morning.